Comic Book Decalogue. On this podcast, we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist each time. My name is Greg, recording in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our guest this time is Tom Kaczynski, the founder of Uncivilized Books, publishers of comics like David B.'s Incidents in the Night series, Greta Wilberg's Draw Stronger, and Gabrielle Bell's Everything is Flammable, maybe my favorite book of last year. Tom's a compelling cartoonist in his own right, of course, and if you're listening to this upon its arrival, and you'll be at TCAF this weekend, the third volume of Tom's Cartoon Dialectics will be available for purchase. That's two comics essays, including a collaboration with Clara Yetzmark, and one piece of fiction premiering at the festival. Go get it this week or at your convenience. Before we get to the interview, there's one small thing I need to address. I suggested last time that uh, John Cena is one of my best friends, something a bunch of supposed internet detectives decided to call in the question, which, look, you don't know. You don't know. And don't try and ask John Cena about it either. He's had a hard couple months lost to The Undertaker. Okay, here's an honest question, though. Would the podcast be more popular if I didn't include so many invented grievances in the intro? <laughs> no, I don't believe it. Uh, but whether you enjoy those bits or merely wait through them, you'll enjoy this. Here's 10 Questions with Tom Kaczynski. Alright, well the first question on the template is, what is the last comic you finished reading? And we'll, we'll make it interesting by saying the last comic not published by Uncivilized Books. Sure. Uh, the last comic I finished reading, I actually went to the source and bought a bunch of comics and I was reading, which I haven't done in a while, but I was reading, um, the Mr. Miracle, uh, miniseries. <laughs> oh, the Tom King? The Tom King one. Yes. So I read the first two issues, um, of that and, uh, that's what I read. How did you like those? Not sure yet. I haven't like processed it, and it's so early in the story. So I mean, I don't know how many issues it's going to be. Like five, six. I don't know if it's a limited series or ongoing. Um, uh, it definitely it reminded me a lot of comics from the eighties. Just they they have that like it, they have that sort of um, like almost like a Bill Sienkiewicz kind of feel in the art. Um, and there's a sort of like you know very deliberate repetition happening. Um, in the storytelling, um, and it just kind of like really rem- like like they were really doing the eighties, <laughs> sort of like uh, I, I guess it's a it's Kirby filtered through the eighties kind of feel to sure, it. It um, seems like there's a bit of genre revisionism to it, or the grounding of heightened elements. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then then that's all what the eighties were about too. The eighties were very revisionist versus the previous era. So this is sort of like uh, you know a second round or third round of revisionism. I, I mean, it seems like those universes go through revisions every every few years now. If you don't do that, like people lose interest at this point. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot online about that series. You know, we saw before we start recording. I'm making my way through the entirety of the Kirby New Gods mm-hmm. series. And in a way, it makes me less interested than ever in seeing anyone else <laughs> do, do the New Gods. Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel the same way. I, I tr- I've, I've tried just about every reinterpretation um, since they started doing them back in, you know, after Kirby finished that series. Um, I've read, I think, all the other New Gods revivals, um, I've, you know, I followed, um, uh, I read some of the other, uh, New God series. I read like the Justice League that had a lot of, um, uh, I think Mr. Miracle was in that if I remember correctly. It was done kind of like in a funny way by Keith Giffen and a couple others. Um, but it's always like, yeah, the, the Kirby stuff always kind of stands head and shoulders above that stuff. And it just feels, I don't know, lacking somehow. <laughs> uh, but that's just, I'm just probably, uh. Uh, you know, an old fogey or something. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe the new gods are like a seasoning. This is a thesis I'm developing as I say it to oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> like I recall uh, in the Grant Morrison Justice League, Orion and Big Bardo are apart, um, but limited to you know a moment or two per issue when Orion right. would say something in you know new god affect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, maybe I'm just nostalgic for the comics I read when I was 11. Sure. So. 
I mean, I like, I, like everybody. <laughs> yeah. So what, wait, what's your thesis? <laughs> oh, the, the new gods post Kirby are best served as a seasoning. Mm, let's mm, say mm, where you know, woe to the creator who attempts to do right, 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 full like, on like a faithful series with one of those characters. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. As opposed to introducing them. Right, right. In, in a way, I guess. I mean, you know. It, like they were not a successful series back then at least that's what DC claimed when they when they canceled them but you know the thing that really entered the the DC universe was the the bad guys right like they really became the uh the most important villains of of the DC world um you know if they needed someone that could take on all the superheroes they right. got dark side yeah if you need the heavy <laughs> right 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 there. right it's the it's the kirby baddies that that sort of ended up there um and it will forever seem strange to people i think probably more and more so as the years go on that through some accident in history steppenwolf right found himself as the main villain of that justice league film from last year Oof. <laughs> <laughs> the less said about that movie the better <laughs> all right uh, let me ask you the second question now uh and i don't know apologies to the reader if you can hear uh dogs eating or a dog eating in the background of this conversation she's nearly finished uh, what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise honestly the um and this is gonna sound self-serving uh, but it's uh, i would say uh in a way it's gabrielle bell um i do think she's an amazing cartoonist and she gets plenty of praise but i don't think it's enough like i think she should be getting a lot more um so i and i say this all with the caveat that i i am her publisher currently so um so that's take that with a grain of salt i guess if you <laughs> if you need to but um but i do think you know she gets sort of the occasional nod the occasional nomination but it's always sort of like left out in the end you know so um i don't know maybe that's just also uh you know the bitter tears of her publisher but uh <laughs> but i i think she deserves a lot more praise than she gets um so gabrielle <laughs> now, you've been publishing her for about six years now i think it was uh the warriors arrived in i want to say 2012 yeah what was your introduction to her work um i first saw her work through just her self-published mini comics way back must have been like early 2000s i think it was i'm not sure which which of the shows but it was probably must have been like 2002 2003 either mocha or spx one of those shows i picked up one of her mini comics and i really liked it um and then just sort of like she became one of the artists that i just would buy whatever she was doing next um and then i got to meet her eventually in new york um so then it was easier to follow her work um but that's that's kind of how it i think it was i'm trying to remember what it was it was one of the comics that was collected in that first drawn and quarterly uh book of hers mm -hmm. lucky mm -hmm. okay, let me ask you a question now which is i, I ask not to undermine <laughs> your claims about gabrielle uh, uh but is there an interesting story behind the pat oswalt blurb on everything is flammable i've been curious about that since it came out last year i don't know if there's an interesting story you know, Patton Oswalt, from what I understand, uh, likes comics a lot and occasionally will sort of like tweet out and say that he likes this or that comic. And I think we just, I think we just tweeted at him and I think that's how it came about. I think that's what Gabrielle did, um, if I remember correctly. And, and she, you know, I will uh, chime in in the comments or something if I hear otherwise. But I think it was pretty simple like that, you know, and um, and he just agreed to read the read the book and but he already liked her other work mm -hmm. so i think he was sort of like it kind of worked out so yeah it wasn't there's no Secret weird history yeah not that nothing i'm aware of at least <laughs> and question number three what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with hmm um that's interesting uh i don't know if i you know i don't know if there's a specific comic but you know there is the I think more interesting conversation on sort of around that question could be that over the last 20, 30 years or so, comics have really expanded into a lot of different genres and then into a lot of different age groups in the, in the, in the way that they haven't, they had not been doing before. And, um, so there's whole, honestly, there's a whole bunch of books that are well-loved 
that I just, I'm not interested in because they're just really not written or created for me, which actually makes me weirdly happy um, because that just means comics um, are a pretty vital uh, medium that, that people want to tell very diverse kinds of stories uh, through. So um, I don't know if there's going to be a specific book, but like, you know, for example, um, I mean, I could give you one example, but like Saga, for example, um, mm-hmm. I, I bought the first couple of issues of that and I just never connected with it. I'm sure it's a great comic. A lot of people love it. Um, I just never clicked for me, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, but you know, but I, I think that's good. I think that's a good thing. Sure. <laughs> that is a, a very a thorough <laughs> diplomatic answer. <laughs> and for the listener, uh, uh, Tom deserves a lot of credit, uh, the dog I mentioned earlier was trying to lick his face for about uh, half of his delivery of that question. Let me ask you a side question then. Uh, we're recording this one day after Free Comic Book Day, huh. which is, I don't want to say it puts uh, the comics industry or comics culture uh, in relief in any way because any given shop will only give you a partial window mm-hmm. in, into comics. Uh, but since we are uh, speaking one day removed from it, I'm curious also what uh, you value most in a comic shop, and if uh, that was those tastes were rewarded anyway by your trip uh, yesterday to buy some comics. I mean, I I love what I love about comic shops is that they have a lot of comics. That's like that's always a good thing. Um, and this is you know this is a conversation I've been having for a long time, but I do think that comic shops um, over the last over the last, you know, this is sort of like similar as the pre- previous answer I was giving, but over the last, you know, 20 to 25 years have really sort of like uh, gone all in on sort of the, the, the pop culture end of the comic spectrum. So the superheroes, but also just all the toys and tchotchkes that come with that, um, games and, and books and things like that. Um, you know, at the expense of the the sort of the more literary wing of the comics um, of the comics world, which you know a lot of stores still carry, and there's a lot of amazing stores that do that, but they're they're kind of a minority. Um, but your average comic store doesn't carry those things, and in in a weird way, uh, you know, I is sort of indicative of the sort of the current crisis in the comics world. Mm-hmm. Um, is is you know there's been a narrowing of the audience for for those pop culture um entities and the broader audience is somewhere else the broader audience is looking for ya comics in in libraries or in bookstores um for sort of you know more literary uh works um uh even things like saga probably sell more trade paperbacks through through bookstores than they they might comics through comic book stores you know you know, so in terms of the comic book stores, um, you know, Uncivilized Books sells something like, I don't know, eight to one or somewhere between six to one to eight to one comics through bookstores versus comic book stores. So um, the audience that we serve doesn't, you know, it doesn't get served well by the comic book store. Um, you know, and the whole diamond situation is always tricky, um, uh, where they can get picky with books, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, there's definitely sort of a system geared toward, to sort of narrowing the audience in the comic book store. And, you know, my first comic book store was this store called, um, um, Schinders, um, in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which was, um, kind of a jack of all trades store where there were comics, there was magazines, there were newspapers, there were baseball cards, there were a bunch of weird books. Um, and it just like, to me, that felt very vital. I could actually go to the store, you know, buy a weird magazine, buy a bunch of comics. Um, and it felt like comics were in conversation with the broader world yeah. through, through being together in this one place. Um, and right now they feel so like isolated and um, uh, in their own little sort of comics ghetto, I guess. Um, uh, and you know, I I I want comic book stores to have a little bit of that vitality back, um, if that's possible. Sure, it feels like a world away, even when you see comic books coexisting in uh, or on magazine shelves in grocery stores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, exactly. Also, yeah no longer the case um, yeah. you mentioned Saga earlier which I think is 
is whatever whatever you think of it on a personal level one of those rare books in that I imagine it does sell both in bookstores and in comic specialty shops and the number of those books I think is probably really small the sort of a legitimate crossover mm-hmm, successes mm-hmm. there yeah for sure um, it's definitely yeah that's like a rare rare case um, that probably does does well in both in both places um yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think the challenge is to you know drive traffic when it comes to to new customers. I don't know if Free Comic Book Day is actually a success in that respect. I would sort of be surprised based on the trips I made yesterday that mm-hmm. uh, you know you can uh, attract new people to come in and check things out. But if you know if a significant part of your your business model is about you know, moving busts of Deadpool. Right, um, right, right, right. selections are limited to, you know, more like mainstream serial floppy stuff. It's probably difficult to entice people who wouldn't be coming in there already. And, you know, right, those feel, most of those people are probably already coming in and buying those things anyway. And a lot of new customers are probably not showing up. Maybe there's a few people who sort of want to have every free comic book day comic. Mm-hmm. So they, they hunt around. Um, but you know, I don't even know if they're new readers. They're just like collectible hunters or whatever. Um, so I, you know, I don't know how successful that is as a as a thing. Um, you, def- you definitely see a lot of people in stores, but is it just the same people in coming in mass, or is it, uh, or is there actually new readers showing up to um, to sample things? And I, that- I feel for the retailers to an extent in that to me it. it seems totally intuitive that you would now, especially now, have, you know, a young adult and kids comic section. Um, but for them to, to make that investment when they they don't already have younger people coming in, I mean, something has to change, but... Yeah, absolutely. But um, if you're, a, you know, a, someone who's big into YA comics, you can get them online or get them at a, a bookstore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a more diverse selection. I don't know why you wouldn't simply do that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> All right, uh, the fourth question is, you can send one comic back in time to yourself at 14. What is that comic? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I would send... I don't know. I mean, even if I sent it back, I don't know if I'd get it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's, you know, I I, I feel like every, every comic that I really, really liked, it took me a while to get it. Like it, I needed to be, I needed to kind of read it multiple times um, until I like a fl- like a switch flipped in my head where I got it. So, for example, if I you know if I was like if I'd sent sort of like Eight Ball, for example, I loved Eight Ball um, uh, back in the '90s. I loved that comic, and you know I would want my 14 year old self to be able to read it. But when I first encountered Eight Ball. Um, and I think it was April number three. I just remember thinking it was grotesque and ugly, and I didn't, like just like I didn't want to look at it. It was like, why did I buy this? Like, what? but there was also like a certain had a certain charge that you know was undeniable. Um, but it took me like two or three more issues before I finally like something flipped, and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, same thing goes for someone like Kirby, who I really like a lot too. Um, I would buy his early comics and I would just be like, oh, this is kind of antiquated and weird. And like, why is he draw this way? I didn't really get it. And then at some point, you know, a switch flipped and I, and I would get it. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe one of those, either some comics by Jack Kirby, um, like, uh, like OMAC or something like that. I would send it back to my 14 year old self and maybe I would get Kirby a little bit quicker because <laughs> I'll have a lot more time. Now, I have a secondary uh, question for you on this general topic. There's an interview uh, at the Rumpus from several years ago between Tom and me uh, where we talked about uh, the release of your book, Beta Testing the Apocalypse. Um, I think you might be the first person on this podcast who I've interviewed before, and which I mentioned because we discussed some formative comics of your youth there as well. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned, uh, I look back uh, before you came over, uh, reading the Funky Cobble series, mm-hmm. reading uh, Gregor Rosinski comics. Uh, so I was curious, once you'd moved to the U.S. from mm-hmm. Europe, if there were particular comics uh, during your teen years that you missed or, or certain comics experiences that you no longer had access to, even if you happened to be, you know, 
even if you had a wider range of comics available to you in the States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, definitely, um, even though I, you know, there was this whole new world open through Marvel Comics, DC Comics, and all the other American comics, and some of the reprints that were coming over from Europe, um, there was still a lot of things that I couldn't get. Like, um, I did really like the Thorgal series by Greg Roshinsky, um, and I don't believe at that point anybody in America was reprinting them. I think there maybe two volumes came out in America um, of the series, and I already had those in, mm. in Polish, you know. So it didn't like why would I buy them again in English? Although I did anyway. Um, but then the late, you know, there's like I don't know twenty, thirty volumes of that series. You know, I definitely was not able to read a lot of those until much, much later when they started reprinting them, maybe ten years ago here. Um, same, and then for anything that really goes on in the Polish comic scene, um, definitely became very opaque and hard to mm-hmm. hard to get. Um, uh, as soon as the the sort of the the Iron Curtain fell, um, and and uh, all those countries sort of started um, converting to capitalism, um, a lot of a lot of publishers went bankrupt. Um, comics became um, instead of sort of being funded by the state it had to be privately funded and there was very little money for that um so a lot of the things that were printed around that time were printed in small quantities mm-hmm. in sort of haphazard ways and a lot of that stuff is very difficult to find and 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 um i you know i really don't know what was going on in that era um with some minor things also funky kobo there was some more funky kobo things that were coming out later and i loved that comic and i couldn't see those um until much much later so there was definitely things that were happening you know my spectrum broadened through you know through being in america but also certain portions of it got a lot more difficult to access mm-hmm. Let me ask you one more question on that. That uh, this may be a too specific a question or a question for someone who who remained in Poland. But in our previous interview, uh, available in the archives of therompus.net, uh, <laughs> you mentioned that growing up in communist Poland, a lot of the genre heroes were explicitly communist genre heroes. Uh, you know, it would be a, a communist police detective, say. And I was curious if you happen to know if any of the marquee genre heroes from uh, before the Iron Curtain fell made the transition in some form or evolved uh, in such a manner that allowed them to continue to be featured in stories that people were picking up or if they were all kind of lost to history? I don't know. I mean, the the, the cop comic we were referring to, Capitan Zbik, I don't know how... I don't know. I don't know if there's been a revival of that character. I mean, he was a very popular character. There was, yeah, I believe there was even um, a TV series... But I don't know if there's been sort of like a post-communist revival. I would have to look that up. I don't know. Um, and, you know, the other sort of, like if there were some that were very explicitly communist, there was um, also just a lot of like sort of apolitical comics too. Mm-hmm. So where, where no politics could be discussed or or had some sort of vague like nationalistic things like Kaikoi Kokosh was set in like distant past a thousand years ago where like polish Slovene, um slavic tribes were were fighting vaguely german mm-hmm. you know germanic tribes and you know it was very sort of had that um asterix and obelisk kind of vibe to it but you know no current politics was discussed in that but it had a kind of a vague national like oh poles versus germans kind of vibe um and that is still very popular that is still like a very popular comic um in poland um but there's so much more now that it's you know it's kind of boggles my mind how much more there is and i'm not up on everything there's so much that i it's hard to keep up with that stuff and hard to keep up with the american stuff so it's just so many more comics in general so question number five is how much do you think about readers when you're making a comic? Uh, which is a question I'm curious about with you, uh, both because you come from uh, an architecture background, or at least an architecture degree, where you know, unlike comics, it's a, a consideration of, of the end use mm-hmm. as a matter of life and death potentially. Um, but also, uh, you know, some of, some but not all of your comics are essay comics, where mm-hmm. you know, a clarity of thought and purpose is you know hugely important. So how mm-hmm. much when you're cartooning, uh, is the reader in your mind? 
I mean, basically a lot, you know, like most, most of my comics are like you say, like essays, um, or sort of try to try to spell out an idea or something like that. Um, in, in which case I think the clarity is really important. Uh, you know, I don't know that I have a specific reader in mind. It's, it's really difficult for me to think of a specific reader, partly because a lot of my comics have this sort of like a little bit of a philosophical bent and there's not that many readers of comics that that read those kinds of comics like the kinds of comics i make comic book stores don't carry <laughs> or very few of them do i mean in in a way most of since i've started doing those kinds of comics it's been a little bit of a quest for the reader like trying to find a, the ideal reader for that and um, and I always sort of imagine myself, I guess, as that reader, at least initially, um, uh, because if I'm going to be interested in it, then hopefully someone else who reads things like that will also be interested in that. Although I've been sort of assembling um, sort of a group of people that I that I think could be readers of my of my next book. So once it's finished, I'll have them read it, <laughs> and then and it's a pretty diverse um, group of people. Um, different sort of backgrounds as writers, academics, um, artists, etc. Um, so we'll see how that goes over because I'm not really sure if I'm making any sense in <laughs> my recent comics, but I, I definitely, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking for someone who, who thinks of comics or at least is willing to take comics on as a, as a way of thinking as using images and words as, as a, as a way of thinking about, about the world um, and not just as sort of a medium of storytelling, but as some kind of something where those two interact and it's an intrinsic part of thinking about ideas. Yeah. Let me ask you a side question about that. I'm curious because uh, like, like we've been saying, you're, you're not only a cartoonist, but um, a person with, I think, a pretty diverse literary diet. You know, you think about media and how it functions um, sometimes explicitly like in your most recent comic what do you make of the meme and it's it's uh you know skyrocketing into you know the way we talk to each other over the last few years and the relationship between words and comics there yeah i mean the, the meme is like you're kind of talking about the internet meme right yeah. where you have an image some image with some text. text and it's sometimes just really generic but it's but there's like some power to that um yeah, like a codified yeah. use but with some room to inject yeah 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 i mean you know in in a way that's um the new place for the single panel political cartoon in a weird way mm -hmm. right um um, although obviously not all memes are political, but a lot of them are. <laughs> um, most memes aren't drawn, so I guess you know, like it, it, like so they're not like a lot of comics which are drawn. I mean, so I guess they draw more from sort of like collage or like fumetti or that, those kinds of traditions. And if you like, if you want to pu pull those in as traditions, but I think honestly, just most of them are like. I mean, the, the generative engine is is computers themselves. Sort of, they give you the ability to essentially take any image and do whatever you want with it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the gen, the generative um, po power comes from the computer, and 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 it's just it's. I feel like it's part of the the whole like mix remix curatorial thing that happens on on the internet. Where you take you you find things and you repurpose them in new ways. I think there's an interesting question there too, and about who is being subverted. If it's the image, or if you know, given our dependence on the internet to mediate this conversation, if it's if it's potentially the the meme maker that is being subverted. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, mean, you, I think you could read this in many different ways. There, there's so many levels to sort of to being on the internet whether through memes or through you know through like our social identities through um you know through you know being the one of the persons the people that that sort of creates the internet by being a programmer uh versus someone who sort of exists in there as a writer or as an artist um you know, and the meme sort of sits somewhere in between that because you have to obviously have some kind of 
at least initially you had to have some kind of ability to to splice images and words together into an image. Although nowadays I, I have a feeling there's, I mean, I haven't used these apps, but I'm sure there's plenty of apps that mm -hmm. kind of do this very easily where you just, you can type something in at an image and you're done. Um, uh, I guess that's sort of the MO for a lot of like the Instagram uh, moments, you know, those, those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I've thought enough deeply enough about memes to really like get into the weeds of this. But um, I, I definitely think images and words have been combined more closely than ever before in, in, a, in, a, in a wide array of of media online, um, and would definitely have become a much more visual culture through through um, you know being able to sort of access. Um, media and content in, on, on so many different devices and, and in so many different situations where we haven't been able to before. And for me, like if anything, comics is sort of is sort of the, the literature that has enough of a history and is slow enough where we can where we can um, use it to to interrogate these things. So um, it's 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 um, it's it's sort of like I guess it's the literature for today. It's something that that can use words and images in a contemplative way and help us make sense of the chaos. <laughs> as long as we're talking about culture and change, uh, there was another question I was hoping I'd, I'd find a segue toward. In your new mini comic cartoon Dialectics Three, there are two pieces about the natures of nostalgia um, mm -hmm. and the perils of nostalgia too which I was curious about the motivation behind those essays well it's really evident in some respects you know you talk about Donald Trump explicitly in one of them but I was curious because you don't have uh, you know the marks of a nostalgist you know uncivilized has a pretty forward thinking list do you see yourself as someone who's uh, in danger of being a nostalgist in any way? Or is it more something you're looking at from a pretty comfortable remove? I am thinking about nostalgia definitely a little bit more from a remove, although the the whole thinking about that topic was sparked by a very sort of like... like a, mo a momentary bout of intense nostalgia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and the the first uh, it, was, it was the mini comic was published probably like 2004 or something like that. Um, Trans Siberia was sort of the comic that I did about nostalgia, and it was motivated by this very intense nostalgic feelings that I was having at the time. Um, partly, you know, br brought up brought through. Um, I traveled to Japan right around that time, and one of the things that that Japan has, at least back then. Um, Uh, had over America is that it it it's it very much is um it's a consumer culture but it's like a consumer culture of all periods of time <laughs> and all pop culture so if you if there was something you were looking for there was, you could probably find it in Japan um, uh, you know that that went for music stores etc etc and I was able to find all kinds of <laughs> communist media uh, from when I was a kid. Uh -huh. In Japan, on DVD, you know, I was able wow. to find cartoons from, you know, from when I was growing up as a kid, um, and I was able to watch them for the first time uh, since I had moved from uh, from Poland. And this was pre YouTube. YouTube hasn't started yet, so all this stuff was sort of happening, um, you know, not not in this like constant presence, which mm -hmm. it, it is in, in YouTube now. Um, but it, it was kind of this intense nostalgia that I felt because I found these artifacts. So just, it's sort of like, it was, the, that was a springboard that sort of, um, made me interested in nostalgia as a, as a thing. And also, um, Poland at that time was sort of electing a government that was sort of formed out of the ashes of the old communist party. So it felt like Poland was going backwards in a weird way. Um, uh, so, and, and there was a lot of nostalgia bound up in that, in, in, in that election. Um, so it just made me think about nostalgia culturally, but also politically. And, um, yeah, that was sort of the springboard, I guess. Um, I could talk about nostalgia, like there's all, so many different things I could talk about nostalgia, but I don't want to hijack that sure. the podcast here. 
<laughs> but I can go. I can go on. <laughs> I'll, 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 ask, uh, I'll ask question six, and then okay. we find ourselves okay. looping okay. back. No problem. Nostalgic for the conversation of sure, ten sure, minutes sure. ago. We can sure, sure, sure. Revisit. Sounds good. Which is uh, move forward. Six. What's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? The closest is possibly when I first moved to New York. You know, I ostensibly I moved to New York to uh, you know as a job to work f- free to work freelance um, in the sort of the dot com boom that was happening at that time. So I was doing a lot of design work um, online, uh, advertising work, uh, animation, things like that. Um, and comics, you know, because it was freelancing can be such a sort of like demanding thing. Um, uh, it was definitely difficult to sort of to get a lot of comics done. So I, you know, was very like not productive at that time, but I was also like despairing about that. I was very much, um, wanted to be more productive, mm-hmm. but I uh, wasn't as a cartoonist, as a cartoonist. Um, but then also at the same time, I didn't, I didn't really have a, I felt like I hadn't really found my voice yet. I hadn't found, you know, I was sort of fumbling around. I was trying different things. I was doing all these different things. And, and at that, you know, and I had this idea of what comics should be, I guess. I mean, I was trying to kind of go for that, but I wasn't, but whenever I would go for that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I just I hadn't I hadn't found my voice and I hadn't figured out what to do and it was definitely like um like a anxious time for my for my cartooning and I did eventually sort of figure it out but it was you know it was like well I'm making a bunch of money doing freelance design maybe I should just do that that was definitely like on my mind at some point <laughs> As we mentioned earlier that you of course are <laughs> <laughs> this is really charming, right, listener? Please don't. <laughs> That's endearing. Uh, that yeah, you are the head of Uncivilized Books in addition to being a cartoonist. Um, and I don't want to ask, is that difficult too? Because I'm sure the answer is yes. But with those different types of comics duties and uh, different forms of comics making, are you at a balance right now that you're satisfied with? There's never balance. <laughs> Um, but I have been, you know, very actively trying to change my life in a way where all those things can coexist. Um, and I've always been, I've always, I've never, I guess I've never been interested in doing one thing. I've always been interested in doing a lot of different things and they're always somehow related to comics, but, um, but yeah, like I've very actively for the last like two, two and a half years, I've been like, like changing things in my life. I'm meditating. I'm doing all these things. I'm working out because I can't, I need the energy. Um, otherwise I can't do this stuff if I don't have the energy, uh, you know, just really changing my schedule, um, and trying different things to make it work. So it's been it's been a struggle, but it you know mm-hmm. I feel like it's been a positive one. And definitely for the last year or so, I've been the most productive that I've maybe have ever been in terms of uh, the amount of comics pages I've been able to draw and write. So um, so for for the moment, it seems like it's working. We'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. But things go always off kilter. So that's just life. But yeah, so it's been it's been a very active struggle to like to get to a place where I can get a lot of things done, um, both in publishing and in, um, in my own comics. And question number seven, what's the best advice you've heard about making comics? The, so maybe the, for, at least for me, I don't know if this would be for everyone, but, um, I, this was, um, I think it was maybe I was talking to like Adrian Tomine or somebody like that. I, he was in New York uh, at the time when I was in New York, and I think we talked about stuff. Um, and I think something he said, something like, "You just like you just you have to finish like one good page, and then do another one, and then just do another page, and then somebody at some point is going to like notice that good page." And it like it definitely made me slow down a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me think about like how I was making comics. Um, it's not really like that profound of advice. Like I'm sure every cartoonist at some point has said something similar. Um, but it just kind of like at, at, that, at that moment, it's kind of stuck with me and it was important for me at that moment. 
and it allowed me to sort of think about what I was doing a lot more um, deliberately. You know, it sort of it made it, it gave me that that little push to make a switch to do something. Um, I don't know if there is really like the best advice. Everybody is kind of at a different spot when they're in, in their comics making life. Um, and at different points, everybody needs a different push. So, um, it's hard to say what the right push is. And question number eight, what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> Um, what's worse? And you have to answer. Or you say, <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of like what's the worst possible thing. There are probably a few things. Um, you know, uh, for a while I had a I had a comic strip in in the Minnesota Daily, and the, the University of Minnesota had a has a newspaper, the Minnesota Daily, and I had a weekly comic strip that at some point I just quit doing um, just it seemed like untenable and I wasn't really I didn't feel like I was getting good work done uh, but I look back at a lot of those strips and like I feel like I grew a lot as a cartoonist just by having this forum to be able to do this um, constantly um, and I, I, honestly that's that's probably the worst decision you make is when you stop drawing for a while when you like when you when things life takes over and you decide to uh, not do some uh, regular gig or something just because it's too much. Um, um, it always kind of takes you away from uh, sort of thinking about comics. Um, and then you, you get rusty. You have to like re reboot yourself in a way. And then so, so that kind of decision where you just kind of like step away um, for a while. That's what I'm trying to avoid right now is to just like stay and keep doing stuff. Even if I don't have anything that I can publish directly, um, I'm still making stuff um, um, and have a place where I can keep making stuff, have a project burning always. Um, otherwise, it's, uh, yeah, you just kind of you fall behind. <laughs> Question number nine. What work from another medium has influenced you the most? I mean, honestly, it's it's the thing that, that has influenced me the most is really like it's is writing it's other writing it's 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 either fiction or or um or or philosophy um i read both a lot of those um and there's always something interesting that sort of bubbles up into my own work um you know for for a long while i was really interested in jg ballard um and it really realigned how i was writing things for a long time um Specific, like, and again, sort of as I talked earlier um, about Jack Kirby and Dan Klaus, it took me a while to get into Ballard. Like at first, it was kind of I didn't really get it, and then something switched, and I really got into it and really took it on. But also, just in you know, philosophy, like you know, reading people like Slavoj Žižek or um, or Mark Fisher uh, and a few others, um, really sort of like opened up. A lot of possibilities um, and one thing that I find about philosophy specifically is a lot of metaphors used in philosophy can be visual and they're so they're but they're written about um, and that's interesting to me so is how can I explicate some of these things visually um, without having to kind of talk about visuals <laughs> how can i be direct with visuals um in, like in, in a philosophical way so that's one of the things that i think about a lot in my comics um but essentially i read a lot and i and that stuff really kind of like bubbles through my work do you have uh friends and readers with whom you converse about uh philosophy in particular uh once once you've read a text i'm curious about that just because um like on your recommendation, actually, I recently read Mark Fisher's Weird in the Area and like that book a lot. But in general, like I wouldn't say I read a, a whole lot of philosophy recreationally. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. It tends to be denser than a Jack Kirby comic book. But, but additionally, um, it's a, a form that I think you know begs a kind of conversation in the wake mm -hmm. of, of having read it. And you know, if if not for the 
a structured environment where you can find that. To me, at least, I think that would be challenging. No, it is. It is, and I, you know, um, it is. I, you know, I don't have a, a good a good sort of community around that. I mean, I do talk to a few cartoonists about it. Like uh, Kevin Heisenga is a good example. He's been living here in town, so um, and and he's he can be pretty cerebral about comics and and its philosophical implications. Um, so I have a conversations with him about it. Um, I, you know, I run into people, um, whenever I go to conventions and things and I, you know, there's, there's a kindred soul here and there that where we talk about this stuff, but it's kind of a, the community is pretty spread out. Um, I really probably should just do more of an effort to, um, to keep in touch with everyone via, you know, the internet or whatever um but in a weird way like the internet has made things easier in that sense but it also has made me less willing to use the computer recreationally or 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 in that sort of fashion like is you spend all your day you know sort of designing a book or or you know you know figuring out logistics on a on, on printing or whatever um, at the end of the day, you just you want to disconnect. You don't want to like stay another two, three hours just sort of um, in in that in that internet stream. So um, one way now is um, I just we just moved into a new office um, where we share the space with um, other publishers um, and other artists, and that's really helped me sort of connect with other people locally where I can discuss a lot of these issues um, one-on-one. I have a struggle along those lines, even just with webcomics, where I know, uh, especially among among the kids, uh, a lot of the most interesting and most personal work is being created, where you know a lot of communities are being formed. Um, and yet, uh, although I, I try to engage with that uh, to the extent that I'm able, I find... Uh, you know, recreational comics reading for me almost has to be in print in order to feel like a, a proper disconnect from the internet space and the exigencies of making a living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a balance I'm working on at the moment with no obvious yeah, <laughs> solutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's it's a weird reversal. I mean, when I, you know, back in the, back in the 90s, uh, you know, when the internet was young... <laughs> I, you know, I was sort of the opposite. I was definitely like, I wanted to be online more and more. And I had, I had, you know, I was doing a lot of design work. I was actually publishing some of my comics online in color. Um, and I really, I wanted more of that online stuff. It was, it was fresh. It was new. It was engaging. It felt like there was a kind of a, a creative charge behind it. And then as time wore on, you just, you, it just, the, and, and the internet has grown, you know, exponentially. Um, it just, now I value the time away from it um, uh, a lot more than the time on it, you know? So, um, and I do think that, um, you know, and this is to segue to print medium, but I think, I do think that print has a place in this world. Um, and it is a way for us to to step away, to um, to slow down a little, and to 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 be able to sort of absorb stories at a different speed um, and, a, and a different medium, and, and 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 not sort of beamed into your eyeballs with with light um, directly. Uh, so you know, I, I I think that that comics and books in print will have a role long long into the future. Um, you know, not, it's not going to be quite the same as it used to be, but it's it's going to be something that we'll continue craving as long as we're human. <laughs> question 10, which is a question about the future and your role in it, Tom. <laughs> Aliens have made contact with Earth, and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. You've been selected to introduce them to comics. <laughs> what do you show them first? Are we sure they're benevolent? <laughs> no, no, we're not. And therein, therein lies the responsibility, the responsibility that you've been given. Well, I'll, you know, I'll answer this, I guess, in the most generous way, assuming they're benevolent and nice. I've been reading, <laughs> I've been reading some science fiction recently, um, where there is almost an impossibility of a benevolent sort of encounter. Um, so I'm like, ah, that's not possible. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, sorry, so I'm introducing comics to aliens? Yes. Um, okay. Um, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough call. Um, I, you know, I would basically say it's like the, you know, it's the, um, it's, it's the pinnacle of human achievement. <laughs> it's a, it's a way of telling story, um, that is, uh, you know, combines visuals and, and words, um, and creates something much larger, um, out of that. I don't know that we've reached the, quite the peak of that. I, you know, I think we're still kind of, I think comics are still very young. Um, and if there's one work, uh, you would have to give them to convey comics potential, um, and or to show humanity at its best or, or to show yeah. why it's inadvisable to cross us. However you, you prefer to play it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the one work would be that I would want them to read. Um, I think, you know, I mean, maybe this is a cop-out, but Aliens would be, um, you know, unfamiliar enough where almost any any comic could be imbued with that potential, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it would be so, so different. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say one comic. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, how about um, Unflattening by Nick Sosanis? Um, which is a comic that I like a lot, but I also dislike certain things about it a lot. Um, and, um, but it, it does like really try to grapple with, with comics in that philosophical way. And it tries to create new philosophy in comics. Um, there's a lot that I disagree with there, but I do think there's a lot of potential there, um, in, in using words and visuals in, um, in a really interesting way. And, and that's why I really like the book. I mean, even if, if I disagree with a lot of things that are in it or, or with the ways that he does it, blah, blah, blah. But I really like it for that, for that sort of leap that he's Mm -hmm. making. Um, so maybe that's a, maybe that's a good one. Maybe they don't need to read superheroes. (laughs) Whatever happens after that, you gave it the best. Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.